Well, good evening, everyone. I'm glad to be here tonight. Glad you're here. Uh, I was wondering if it was going to be just me tonight, so I'm glad it's not. And uh, for those of you that are listening online, we really appreciate that as well. And I pray that this uh, Wednesday nights and, and tonight even would be a blessing to you as we look at God's Word and what, uh, what He has said and what we have to learn from here as we continue in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to the, to the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. And we are in uh, chapter 3. We left off last time, uh, sort of in the middle of chapter 3, and that's where we'll pick up tonight. And uh, before we get started, let me uh, pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this night, and thank you for a time of uh, singing, Lord, singing praises to you, uh, calming our, our hearts, getting our minds prepared. Lord, to hear from your word, to, to think about the things you've said, Lord, that you would teach us. Uh, we ask that, Father. Um, Lord, I pray that you would direct uh, the teaching tonight, Lord, that only the things that are from your word would be heard by people. Uh, Lord, if there's any foolishness in, in what I've prepared, Father, that that would be uh, forgotten. Lord, that the truth of your word would always come forth. Uh, Lord, you have graciously given us your word, and we want to always handle your word rightly. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your patience with us and uh, for how you uh, have given us your spirit that indwells us and teaches us all things. I pray you would put in us a hunger for your word, Lord. We praise you and thank you in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you can't, I don't know if on the camera if you can see, but we're surrounded by our Christmas boxes here. Um, I think it's the biggest piles I've ever seen. I don't know if these numbers are greater than we've ever had, but uh, I'm getting a nod that, yes, it's more than we've had before. So I feel kind of surrounded, but that's a good thing um, to have all these boxes, especially in this time that we're going through, that everybody's coming together and, and still wanting to participate in, in providing a way for the gospel to go around the world and, and to meet some needs uh, in people's lives. So thank you for all those that have, have given to that. Um, Malachi chapter 3, and we left off after verse 5 last time, and we'll be picking it up in, in verse 6. And so what I want to do is just read our, our passage from verse 6 to 12. That's what I'd like to get through tonight is uh, verses 6 through 12, and then we'll um, then I'll give a little recap of where we've been. Starting in verse 6, Malachi chapter 3. <clears throat> For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down 
for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> I want to remind Remind us of what the prophet has just finished telling the people before we got to verse 6. There were two major themes that he hit on in regard to their ongoing sinfulness and uh, lack of reverence for God and his commands. First, he told them how, this was in the last couple times we've come together, he told them how there was a day coming when the Lord would, would come and sit as a refiner over his people. He would burn away the impurity in them and make them righteous so that when they did come before God with offerings, uh, they would now be accepted because they would be given in righteousness. And second, the the prophet told them that, and this is what we looked at last time, uh, that the Lord would also sit in judgment against those who were unrepentant and uh, continued in idolatry and sorcery uh, and abuse, and a whole list of other sins. He said he would, he would draw near to them for judgment. Again, we talked about how that's, that's a scary thought, that, that God would draw near for judgment. Uh, but that's what we looked at last time. To sum it up, those who did not fear the Lord of hosts would be judged. And this is the context or the backdrop for what the prophet now says Uh, tonight in our text about the Lord and how he will deal with his people. There seems to be a sort of a pattern that that we've seen here, kind of a threefold pattern, Uh, that God is promising to refine his people and bring about righteousness, his righteousness in them. Then he switches to judgment against those who do not fear him. And then he goes back to promising good for his people if they will turn back to him. And that's kind of where we're at tonight. And again, this idea of turning back to him is the same idea as repentance. It's what the Lord is after here. Um, and he, he comes back to it in our, in our text in this section tonight. So we'll look at this next charge that the prophet Malachi makes against uh, the people of Israel, which is that they are robbing God. And we'll also see what the remedy is as well as the benefits of applying the remedy. Okay, he, will, he will accuse them. They will deny it. He will prove it. Uh, he will call them to turn back or repent. Uh, and he will promise God's blessing if they trust him or if they put their faith in him. And also, I'll spend a little time talking about the, the tithe and if it does or does not apply to us as New Covenant Christians Um, But first, let's get to the text in verse 6. And we'll get to that other part in a little while. So verse 6 again. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Some of your translations might say destroyed instead of consumed. The Hebrew word Malachi uses here expresses the idea to, to end or to finish. And this is not like something that fades away over time um, and just ceases to exist. This is that something or someone has been ended. 
okay, by someone or something, and in this case, by God. God has not ended them, he's basically saying here. He has not destroyed or consumed them in, a, in the permanent sense. Okay? So I have two questions to start with regarding verse 6. First question is, looking at verse 6, what is the major doctrinal point in this statement? Look at verse 6 again and, and see if you can tell me what is the major doctrinal point in this statement? That God does not change. Absolutely. Okay? God is unchanging. And it's sometimes known as the doctrine of immutability. Okay? The immutability of God. He is unchanging. He does not and cannot change. He's the same past, present, and future. And the scripture says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And we even see this, this doctrine all the way back in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Okay, this is describing God for us. It's, it's a really wonderful doctrine of God, and most encouragingly exhibited in the fulfillment of his promised Savior. There, if God was changing between the time that he promised the, the Messiah and the time the Messiah came, there was plenty of reason for him to say, ah, never mind, uh, and to end it, right? But he didn't, because God does not change. He made a promise, and he keeps his promise. Um, second question I have. In about verse 6 is, what does this statement in verse 6 imply about the children of Jacob? What does it imply about them? What's that? Okay, yeah, they're, they're being protected, but it implies, that also goes to what I'm asking, it implies something about them. They always fall away, yeah. The implication is, they deserve to be consumed or destroyed, if that's what your translation says. Okay? Uh, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The implication is they, they can be consumed. They should have been consumed. Um, the, and, and what he's saying is that this, this second thing does not happen because of the first thing. Okay? You deserve to be consumed, but you're not because God is unchanging. Now, does that mean that no sinner in the world will be consumed because God is unchanging? No. Okay, so we have to understand that Malachi is pointing to some other aspect of God, God's character or, or promises. That God does not consume them because to do so would cause him to change something about what he has promised. Okay, if God totally destroyed and consumed every Israelite and wiped them off the planet... What would that change about God? Make him a liar. Make him a liar. Okay, why? Why so? He promised to always leave a remnant. Okay, he he promised to leave a remnant. I'm going to repeat it so people at home can can hear what it is. <laughs> so he promised to leave a remnant. Okay, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? How it would change God? Okay, yeah. Along those lines, uh, it would mean that he would he would have gone back 
on his promise to save his people. Part of that is keeping that remnant. He would not be able to even bring about the promised Messiah because he was to come through the line of David. So if he destroyed everybody before the Messiah came, no Messiah. Okay? So in other words, what God is saying through the prophet is, I promised salvation would come to you and to the world because the Messiah would come through you. So I cannot go back on the promise because I am unchanging. Therefore, I will not destroy you even though you deserve it. That's basically what we're getting here in this passage. But wait, we haven't seen anything about why they would deserve to be ended. Okay, We haven't seen that here in this passage. Why would they deserve to be ended? We haven't seen that. Or have we? Have we not already seen two and a half chapters of examples of disobedience and of disregard for the commands of God? And, and have we not seen their utter contempt for his name, their lack of fear of God? And have we not seen many examples of the vilest kinds of sin, of adultery and idolatry, uh, bringing polluted sacrifices to God? There's, there's plenty of things we've seen that, that would show us that they deserve to be consumed. And even now, he's about to lay another charge against them so that they do deserve it to be ended. And this is it's not a new thing. And look how far back Malachi takes this in the first part of the next verse, verse 7. Okay, he says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Okay, here you see he takes them all the way back to the beginnings, okay, to the time that they when they became a people when they had not been a people, all the way back to his covenant with their fathers. It doesn't mean their, their actual dad on the case. He's not going back just to their dad here. When this kind of language is used, it is a, it's a reference to their forefathers, to their, to their ancient ancestors, all the way back to the beginning. Okay? And he's, he's saying this is not a new behavior. Uh, you, my people, have always had this pattern of turning aside from my statutes, not keeping them as you should have. And to say that they've turned aside, okay, this has the idea that there's a, there is a straight path um, that has been laid out for them by God, and instead of walking that path, they've, they've turned their head to something else and, and gone off of the path. Okay, when God's people take their eyes off of him and his ways, the result is always leaving the true path. There's no other path but the right and true path. And in their case, it was governed by adherence to God's laws, but they turned from it. They, other things were in their sight, and as soon as they shift a little bit towards something else, they're stepping off the path. They're going a different direction. Okay? And he says that they've always done that since, since their forefathers. They've, they've always done that. And the other thing that we need to see here is the language Malachi uses and tells us that this is not a, a past tense recounting of what they used to do. Okay, he does take it all the way back. But this is not a past tense thing. This is something they are currently doing. They are off the path. They're still heading in the wrong direction, which is why verse 7 continues the way it does, where it says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And there are, there are two implications here that, get at the crux of the problem. And the first one is, as we already discussed, they have left God. Okay, they've left the, the path. And in order for them to return, the implication is that they have left. Okay, so we, we know that to be true there. Um, and so 
you see here that the idea, again, is repentance, turning back toward God. From whatever path they've veered onto, he's calling them to turn back. That's the first implication in that second part of that verse that we read. The second, what is the second implication here in that, in that portion of Scripture? Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What's the second implication? Okay, well, we haven't got to that part yet. Just in that one section. We, we talked about how they, they left God. The other implication there, based on what he says, is that God has left them. Return to me, and I will return to you. Okay? And, and we've seen that already when God talks about curses. We, several weeks ago, looked at uh, curses that God had talked about. And really, what, we're, what he's getting at there is that uh, his blessing has been removed from them. Okay? And now their response here is very similar to their responses to Malachi's other charges that he brought against them throughout the first two chapters. And look how they respond at this in the last part of verse 7. Okay, and this gets to what, what you were saying a minute ago. But you say, how shall we return? Okay, you see, they, they don't even believe they need to return. They don't even believe they've turned away from the path. Basically, they're saying, how shall we return when we've never left? That's, that's the idea here of, of this question of theirs. Is how shall we return if, if we've never left? We've been doing what you've commanded. Okay, this, is, this is their mindset. It's, uh, it's rebellion. So now Malachi sets about to prove that they have left. Okay? And he gets to what, they are, what they've been doing and what they continue to do. And if we look at verse 8, we'll, we'll see that here. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Okay, Malachi starts here with a question. Will man rob God? Or would a man even think he could rob God and get away with it? That is crazy. It's unthinkable. Yet, you are robbing me. That's, that's what he's saying there. It is crazy, yet you're doing it. Again, look at their defiant, argumentative response. They say, how have we robbed you? The response is of disbelief that they could possibly be doing this. You can almost see them looking at each other with their mouths curled up and their eyebrows furrowed, looking at each other in confusion, racking their brains to try to figure out, how are we robbing God? They don't even see it. And they're basically, their, their attitude towards Malachi is, is what? You're crazy. Prove it. Tell us how we've robbed God. And he says here, he says here how they've robbed God. He says, in your tithes and contributions. Now, God's people are, are under his law at this time. And, then, and part of that law is that they are commanded and obligated to pay tithes and give certain offerings. Okay, and it would be in, it really would be an entire study in itself to, to talk about everything that they were required to do and give and, and how and when and all those things. So many requirements regarding their giving and their tithing and those kinds of things. But what I want to look at, what I want to do is just look at the basic requirement that God gave them and why. 
Okay, the, the Hebrew word that has been translated as tithe literally means a tenth or a tenth part. We might say 10%. Okay? This is something they had to give, and it was, it was mainly made up of grains and fruits or livestock, those kinds of things. That, this is what they grew or raised. It's, it was their livelihood. It was their, their wealth. Uh, it's what they had to give from. Deuteronomy 14.22 says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And this is what God wanted from them because he had given it to them in the first place. They they had nothing without God's provision. Uh, It belonged to God. Leviticus Leviticus 27.30 says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And skipping down to 27.32 in Leviticus. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. That is, that it shall be set apart for the Lord. Okay, it's his. And for another example, if you'll turn with me to the book of Numbers. Early on in the Old Testament, turn to the book of Numbers in, verse, or in chapter 18. And look at the reason why God has required this tithe. This, this will inform us as to why the tithe existed. Okay, So chapter 18 of Numbers, starting in verse 21, and we'll go through 24. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel... For an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So here we see that God had the priesthood in place, okay? And he had it in place for a reason. The priests were the mediators between God and the people. And only they could come near to God in in the the tabernacle and later on the temple. And the priests offered sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Uh, But the priests did not have an inheritance of land and crops and livestock like like the other tribes did. When God divvied out the land for the tribes when they came into the promised land, the, the Levites didn't get that. So that's what he's talking about when he says there's no inheritance there. So then... This begs the question, if the priest did not have an inheritance, how did God provide for the priests? What do you think? How did God provide for the priests? They didn't get an inheritance like the rest. What's that? Yeah, out of the tithe. That's, he required all the people of Israel to, to bring a tenth, to bring this tithe, and that's how he provided for the priests, and that's how he provided for... Um, them was by requiring this tithe of the people. This supports the priests, uh, the temple servers, the, the temple musicians, uh, the poor, and all who relied upon these tithes coming in. You had a question? 
for the musicians and everybody supported this. That's part of the point. Yeah, if, if the people weren't tithing, which is what Malachi is charging them with, right? they're not tithing as they should, what does that say? That means that the, the priests and all the people that rely upon that are not getting what they're supposed to get. Right? They're, they're not being provided for by the people. And really, this belongs to God first, and that's why God is saying that you're robbing me. But those, those priests aren't being provided for. All the people that relied upon that are not being provided for. Now, as we'll get into in a minute, you know, they, they may have been bringing something, a, a, a portion, but it was not what God had commanded. And that, then God talks about how he wants them to bring in the full amount. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm, no, no, I'm not going to talk about gross versus net. <laughs> but if you look at it in the in the scriptural sense, what God asked for is the first, the best of what they had. Um, so, and I don't think they had the concept of gross versus net back then. But I just caught what you were reading. I think it was from I'm not sure if it was from Deuteronomy or what, but it says. Of all, yeah. God required a tenth of it. Right. That, that means everything they had. That's gross. Uh, okay. You could, I agree with you there. So I, so I don't know. Right. But I don't know that they have the concept of gross and net like we do. <laughs> but you're right in the sense that it's a tenth of, of all that they had. So it's not a tenth of a portion of what they had. It's a tenth of all of it. Um, so he, in what we read there in Deuteronomy, he said in verse 21, to the Levites, I have given every tithe. Okay, this is, this is going to be key to the rest of our discussion and when we go into how this applies to us today. To the Levites, I have given every tithe. Okay, even the priests were given instructions, though, on what to do with the tithes after they came in and before they used them. Um, looking at Numbers 18, 25, and 26 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Okay, so even, even what all the people gave in terms of their tithe to the priests, the priests had to take that and then take a tenth of that and give it to the Lord. Okay? Uh, so even they were required to give of what they got. And there were, of course, many tithes and offerings and contributions that the people had to bring and, and some that they could bring also of their own free will. They could, they could bring in on top of what they were required to bring. Um, and the key point here is, is regarding the fact that God had commanded it and that he commanded it for a very specific purpose. That these tithes and contributions would come in for a very specific purpose. And it's to support the priesthood of the Levites so that they could focus on their duties and responsibilities before God and the people. Their, their work, their life was serving God and the temple. And that included lots and lots of things that they had to do and lots and lots of people that were involved. It's not like, you know, just nine guys that, you know, that this is supporting. Okay, there's tons and tons of people involved in all the service of the priesthood. That includes the tearing down and taking up of, of the tabernacle when they would move things around and all that, um, and all the people that were there doing all the things that God had commanded them to do. It supported a lot of people, okay? Um, and this is what 
Malachi is getting at. The people were not doing this. They were not bringing in their tithes and their contributions. And first and foremost, this is disobedience to God's command. Second, it robbed God of what was his that he used to provide an inheritance for the priest, for the Levites. Okay, and therefore, they had been cursed with a curse. Okay, and we'll, we'll get to that part in a minute. But right now, I do want to take a side note and veer off and talk about the tithe um, here and, and the idea of the tithe and how it relates or pertains to us uh, if it does. So let's talk about that for a minute, and then we'll come back to uh, talking about the curse that's mentioned here. It really, it's a prevalent teaching in much of the evangelical church uh, that, that new covenant Christians, that's us, are also subject to the command of God regarding the tithe. And people will give their verses that they think support this, but I think if we look closely at the scriptures, we can see it says something different. And I would submit to you that there's nothing in the New Testament even suggesting let alone commanding that the church be subject to the law of tithing. Now, if you grew up hearing about tithing and giving 10% of your income to the church because it's what God wants, join the club. Okay, I, I grew up with that also. Um, but if you're like me, you, you did this without really studying it for yourself or working through the scriptures yourself um, to see if it was true, if, if we were subject to the law of tithing and there came a time a number of years ago when a, a brother in Christ challenged me to show um, how the old covenant tithe applied to the church, and I couldn't do it. Um, after studying, uh, I became more and more convinced that, that I had been wrong. Not wrong to give to the Lord. Okay, I don't want to be confusing here. Not wrong to give to the Lord. But wrong in my motivation and understanding about why I was giving, why I was giving 10% specifically um, I, didn't, I didn't have a good understanding of that. And before you get upset, if anybody's getting upset, <laughs> and think I'm saying that Christians do not need to give, just bear with me for a minute as we go, as we go through this. Um, and a particular question really helped me to get this figured out and kind of settled in my mind. Um, and, that, and I'll ask that question. As, we, as we've already seen tonight in tonight's study, um, why were God's people giving a tenth to the Lord? Let's answer that question again. Why were God's people giving a tenth to the Lord? Why did he command it? To support the Levites, the priesthood, right? Because God commanded it under the law to support those priests and the temple service and all that that entailed. And that really got me to thinking, what, what, happened, to the, what happened to the priests and the temple service? Well, it all went away. There, there came a time when, after having served their purpose, God did away with the temple service, did away with the priesthood. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, upon the death and resurrection of Christ, the scripture says he fulfilled the law. Think, think about for a moment. The old covenant with its requirements has now been done away with. Okay, the priesthood became obsolete because Jesus was the once-for-all perfect sacrificial lamb. No more animal sacrifice. He became our great high priest. And Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's what the priesthood was all about. It was taking these, these animals and sacrificing these animals to atone for the people's sin. But the scripture tells us in Hebrews that that never took away people's sins. We needed 
Christ. We needed his sacrifice. And turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7. Okay, look at Hebrews chapter 7. Okay, and we'll look at verses 22 through 25. I'm just going to, in our discussion about this, I'm going to have several scriptures I want us to look at um, as I lay a, lay a foundation here. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 through 25. Um, okay, and this is in a section here where the author of Hebrews is comparing Christ to Christ's priesthood to that of Melchizedek. Um, that's a whole study in itself, but. Um, but he's proving through here, and the whole book of Hebrews is this, proving the superiority of Christ okay, and his priesthood. And, and in the idea of this old covenant, new covenant, um, and talking about this in looking at Christ under the new covenant, starting in verse 22 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Okay? Over all the hundreds of years of the priesthood, the high priests, they would always die. They're human. They, they would always die. Okay, So the next one would have to come, then the next one would have to come. And all that is because of sin. Um, and that's a, the point he's making, making here. There's this, this inferiority of the old covenant priesthood. And verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently. He's talking about Jesus because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay? The priesthood was obsolete because the people no longer needed a representative between them and God. Jesus is now the only mediator between God and man. And in regard to this, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, this is a huge change. The priesthood was obsolete because the the veil separating the people from the Holy of Holies was torn upon Christ's death because Christ had now opened the way to God through his own flesh. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Okay, we no longer needed the priesthood because Jesus is now our great high priest. Hebrews 7.12 is, helps make this clear. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Okay? It, it, everything changed with Christ. And if it were not clear enough that the priesthood was obsolete, God had the temple destroyed in AD 70 so that there was not even a place for the priests to go and practice animal sacrifice. They couldn't even do the functions they were supposed to do anymore because... The temple was destroyed. And that's no accident. And why, why have I spent this time showing that the priesthood under the old covenant is gone? Well, because for the, the priesthood to be gone changes everything. Okay, there's no longer a need for the tithe because there's, there's no temple. There's no temple service. There's no priests. 
There's no group of God's people without an inheritance. In short, the tithe went away with the priesthood. The tithe was never a command for all time because it was a command under the old covenant as long as that covenant was in effect. And with no priesthood and no, and no priesthood needed, uh, the reason for the tithe has gone away. The tithe was an obligation for God's people under the law. They had to do it to be right with God. Jesus fulfilled the law of God on our behalf, and now we're made right with God, not by a legal requirement to the tithe of the first fruits of our labor, but through the fact that Christ became the once for all first fruit offering. Okay, so what now? What are we required to do under the new covenant? Giving for us has not gone away. Okay, this doesn't mean that Christians don't give. Okay, um, we're, we're called to be givers. We're called to be cheerful givers. And look at what Paul told the Corinthian church regarding giving to the church. Giving for the people of God is now a matter of, of conscience. It's to be done cheerfully and can be what you decide in your heart to give. He said a few things to the Corinthian church uh, about preparing to give a, a particular um, at a particular time, and then he said this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, this is way different than old covenant tithing. Giving is not to be done reluctantly or because you feel compelled. The Israelites were compelled to give by God's law. Now, it's a matter of a, a joyful heart. Giving because, because of the matchless and overwhelming generosity of our Lord uh, who has adopted us, saved us, and gives us all good things. And we are now free to give. Paul said more about this in, a, in an earlier, his earlier letter to the Corinthians, and it looks more like what we do today in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Okay, so here we see that the giving was done on the first day of every week, okay, which is Sunday, when they gathered on the Lord's Day, as we do. This is why we gather on the Lord's Day. Um, Paul directed them to give, but notice that it was not an amount, a particular amount or a percentage. He said, put something aside and store it up. And then he said, he added on to that, putting something aside, he added on, as he may prosper. And these words indicate that the giving of the saints was based on what they were able to give according to what they had. Okay, the, the problem with requiring Christians to tithe is that it will eventually lead to monitoring what people are giving, holding them to that amount when you set that amount. Okay, and, it, and it really, ultimately, it leads to making a connection between giving and your salvation, which is a big problem. Okay, there are churches that, that monitor people's giving. They, they require them to show them their tax returns and, 
and those kinds of things so they can make sure they're giving the right amount. Uh, well, the logical conclusion of that is, what if I don't, what if I don't do that? Well, eventually they're going to call into question your salvation. Okay, our salvation is not based on tithing. Um, so that's a dangerous thing when we when we try to hold ourselves or other Christians to the law of the tithe. Also, if someone is going to hold themselves, or if a church is going to hold them to the old covenant tithe system, well, I hate to break it to you, but you would have to give more than ten percent. Okay, if if you look at all that they had to give between regular tithes and then they had special tithes for for different years and events. They were actually required to give more like 25%. Okay, so if you're really going to hold to the old covenant tithing, you're going to have to up it some. Okay, um, so we're not under the law to be made right with God. Okay, to be right with God, the Israelites had to give a certain amount. They did. They had to bring this tithe, and there was many other ways they had to do things to be right with God. But this was one of those ways they had to be right with God was giving the tithe. Hence what Malachi is dealing with, okay? And Paul said in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We are not made righteous by law keeping. Christ is the end of that. We, we receive his righteousness by faith. If you want another example of how we are to give, look at what John said, 1 John 3.17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Hey, so, so can a Christian give 10%? Sure, you can give 10%. If it's, if it's your conviction that you should give at least 10%, then do so with a joyful heart. That, that may be a good starting point for you. If God has blessed you with much and you desire to give more than that, do so with a joyful heart and with, without compulsion. If you're struggling financially and you can't give it all for a while, do so in good conscience. And, and when God blesses you and you desire to give, do so. We give because God is so good and gracious and kind to us. We give to the Lord because this is how we have a building to meet in. Uh, we, we have money to pay our pastors and, and bring the word of, who bring the word of God to us and, and to support our pastors' families. Uh, it's how we pay our other staff members who work so hard for the kingdom of God and, and to minister to us in, in different ways. And it's how we support the work of the gospel as we give to missionaries. We give to those organizations around the world that, that take the gospel out. Okay, all the boxes we see here, people have spent money on these things. They've given of their time, of their finances. People giving time of packing all these things up. Giving as Christians is not just about monetary giving. It's sacrificing our, our lives for Christ. Okay? It is expected that God's people will be generous with what he has given them, but we don't submit to a law of giving a certain amount. If your conscience has been in bondage trying to keep the law of tithing, be free from that. Be free from that. Give as the Lord leads you and, and do so with the right motives, which are joy and a desire to participate in the work of the gospel and giving because you have been given the greatest gift ever, um, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's get back to our, to our text and what, 
what was coming against the people of God because they were not obedient to the command to tithe. Remember that at the time, they were still under this obligation. Look again at our text in Malachi at chapter 3, verse 9 now. Okay, and we're going to get to that curse. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The whole nation was guilty of this sin, the sin of robbing God of what was his. The result is pointed out by Malachi as a curse. And we should notice that this was not a, a promise of a future curse, uh, but an explanation of why they were already experiencing God's curse on them. Though there's no text here explaining exactly what it was or how long it had been going on, we can gather some insight from, from our passage. Again, it was, this curse was already upon them for however long it, it had been going on. And you can bet that they've not been happy about it uh, and have probably been wondering why this was happening to them. And well, here's the explanation. Robbery. They were all guilty. Okay, it, it does seem as if they were still, this goes to what I said at the beginning, um, it does seem as if they were still bringing something, perhaps, but we know from chapter 1 that the things that they were offering were polluted or sick or injured or stolen. Um, and I, I say they were bringing something because the next verse may indicate that. Look at, look at it with me in verse 10. Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Okay, he says, bring in the full tithe into the storehouse. May indicate that they were bringing a portion. Okay, elsewhere in scripture, we're told not to put the Lord to the test, okay, but here, in this context, God is calling for them to test and see if he will not do what he said he will do and meet their needs. He says, bring in the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Okay, perhaps they were bringing a portion, but it wasn't the complete tithe. And God sees this as robbery, as stealing from him. Question for you, does God need food? God doesn't, he doesn't need food, but again, he required it here for certain reasons. We already discussed the provision for the priest, but there is also the fact that to be obedient here forces the people to put their trust in the promised provision of God. Okay, their proper response of obedience shows that they rely upon God completely, which brings glory to God. And he's saying do what I have commanded so that the storehouse in the temple can function how it's meant to function. Bring it all in, just as I've said. Don't cut corners. Don't try to hold a, a bit more back. Obey my word. He says, test me and what? See, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God has been holding back his blessing from them. That is the idea of the curse. To be cursed of God here is to not only have his blessing withheld in terms of provision of rain for the crops, but also uh, that he has commanded the devourer to consume the crops that they do have. If they will but obey and rely completely on him, he will not only make it rain, but he will pour down 
And the language here is very descriptive, giving this picture of all the rain being held back and, and building up behind the windows of heaven, ready for them when they will turn back to God. And here we need to see also and notice that earlier they were called to turn back to God. Again, the idea of repentance. Now the call is, is to that of seeing if he will not do as he promised. This is the picture of faith. We should not miss the pattern here that carries over to us as Christians. God has promised eternal salvation to those who will repent from sin. Turning to him in faith, okay, in the work of Jesus Christ, in his propitiation for that sin. And this is the most abundant blessing ever poured out for sinners. Okay, that's, so we can kind of see that picture there. Okay, question. If they do this, what is the other thing God says he will do for them in verse 11? Okay, if they will turn back to him, what is, in verse 11, what is the other thing he will do for them? Okay, yeah, he will, in my translation says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, the implication from this verse is that they were, um, that what they were trying to grow and produce was struggling. Their labor was in vain because the fruit was being destroyed by some sort of pest. Uh, this is most likely locusts. Um, and here it's referred to as the devourer. Okay, and the Hebrew word there literally means to eat. It, the, the eater. That's what's going on here. Their crops are being destroyed by the eater. And another attribute of God that we see here is that he is sovereign. This is important for us to see. In this case, sovereign over the weather and the creatures, including insects. Okay? People may try to debate uh, whether God actually sent the devourer, I believe he did, or if it was naturally occurring. We can see in Scripture that God is in absolute control. Who caused a great fish to swallow Jonah? God did. Who caused storms to, to rise up, and then who caused those storms to calm down on more than one occasion? God did. Okay, I believe I believe Isaiah explains this for us well in Isaiah 45, 7. It says, this is God speaking through Isaiah. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And whatever your thoughts here are regarding the devourer, we cannot deny his sovereignty over the goings-on of the insects because of what God says next. In that verse, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy. Whether he sent the devourer or not, which I believe he did, but whether he did or not, he has the power to stop it in its tracks. He will rebuke it, meaning I will command it to stop. If that's not sovereignty, I don't know what is. And God wants them to repent and turn back to him and bring in the tithes and offerings as he has commanded, having faith that he will provide for his people as he's promised to do. And what is the result? The result is that God is glorified. Look what Malachi says in our last verse, verse 12 of chapter 3. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, their land will become a land of delight. 
This will not only be a delight for them. Um, I mean, that is great, but God will use this as a way of bringing glory to himself. It's not just about the land being a delight for them. God is after his own glorification. He says, then all the nations will call you blessed. And this doesn't just mean that all the nations will look and say, well, what a great place the Israelites have to live in. That others will call them blessed is not just that they will say, look how happy they are. What this means is that it will be known that the God of the Israelites has blessed his own people because they are right with him. They will be praising God for his provision and it will be known everywhere that it was God doing this and not their own efforts. The foreign nations must then ask themselves, what has my God done? Right, this piece of wood or this rock that I worship, what, what has it done for me? Look at the God of the Jews. He truly is the Lord of hosts. And this is how God brings glory to himself. When his people will turn back to him uh, in faith, he will bless them. And others see that blessing. And who gets the glory? God gets the glory. That's what Malachi is after and uh, here tonight. So this is, a, this is a really great promise that he makes here, just of, of turning back to God. God has said, I'm unchanging, so I haven't consumed you. Turn back to me in faith and see what I will do and how I will bless you. Okay? Any questions before we close? If you have a question you want to ask afterwards, um, hopefully I, I made things clear. Um, but Thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. Uh, it's a blessing to, to see you all. And for those that are watching at home, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, again for tonight, for your word. Thank you, Father, that we can learn from it. Thank you that when we maybe have had wrong thinking about something for a long time, that other brothers and sisters can point us in the right direction, and we can, we can check your word, and we can test it to see if it's true, Lord. And I thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ to worship you, the freedom that we have to give joyfully. We have every reason to give joyfully. Thank you, Father, for the greatest gift you've ever given, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. We praise you in his name. Amen. Thank you.